Good morning. <laughs> I wondered whether there was anybody there for a moment. <laughs> Let's bow our heads as we turn to God's Word. We've got our Heavenly Father, we come this morning dependent upon you to speak to our hearts through your Spirit that he may make your word clear to us and that we may worship the Lord Jesus as we ought to. And we ask this for his glory's sake. Amen. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles with me to the book of Hebrews. And... Uh, Chapter 1, the book of Hebrews, and chapter 1. And we're going to read together um, the first three verses. Hebrews chapter 1, and verses 1 to 3. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways in these last days has spoken to us in his son whom he appointed heir of all things through whom also he made the world and he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power and when he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Francis Schaeffer, whom some of you may have read, titled one of his books, He is There and He is Not Silent. And this is precisely what the writer here wants us to take note of this morning. God has spoken, and we must take note. Or as the prophet Amos wrote, a lion has roared, he will not fear. The Lord God has spoken, who can but prophesy. But it's not just the fact that he has spoken that the writer wants us to take note of here but the way in which he has spoken. He does this by contrasting the way that God has spoken in the past with the way that he has spoken now. In times past he spoke in many portions, our writer tells us, and in many ways. That is, God's message was not given all at once. But it was given in small portions spread over a long period of time. In fact, over 1,500 years about. It was given by a variety of different people. From kings and princes to priests and shepherds and even an orchardist. It was given by word of mouth. It was given by letter on tablets of stone. 
It was given by principles for living and by judgments on evil doing. By demonstration, like a prophet running through the streets wearing nothing but a rotten loincloth around his waist. It was given in prose, in psalms and songs, and in apocalyptic symbolism. And I've comforted myself often that it was even given by an ass. But it was always given to the fathers by third parties, by in-betweeners. The message was always true, always consistent, but always incomplete. Its incompleteness was tantalizing to those who gave it, and even as Peter tells us, to those in heaven. He wrote as to the salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful search and inquiry, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel, to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, the things into which angels long to look. It was God's word that was given in times past. It was a true word that was given in times past. But there was always something missing, always something more to come. The promise was there, but it needed to be fulfilled. Now, says our writer, at the end of these days, at the end of these days in which God spoke to men by portions and many ways and on different types of literature, he has spoken to us in his Son. The literal translation is, in these last days, he has spoken to us by a Son. And if you have encountered Jehovah's Witnesses. This is one of their favorite verses. But what they miss out is that the identity of that son is left in no doubt with what follows. He is a unique son. I think it is here we need to remind ourselves to whom the author was writing. We don't know exactly where they lived, but it is almost certain from the contents of the letter that they were, as the title suggests, Hebrew questions. The point that really concerns us here though is that they have had in the past a strong faith. For instance, in chapter 10 we read, but remember the former days, when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of suffering, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. 
and you accepted joyfully the seizure of your property because of their faith. But they now appear to be wavering in that faith. And the writer wishes to encourage them to continue in that faith. Therefore, he says, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. If you have need of endurance, so, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. He encourages them on the basis of the person who is doing these things. Having spoken in the past by prophets, God now speaks in a more personal, a more absolute way. For in these last days, he has spoken to us in his Son. And who is this Son who speaks to us? Well, our author gives us seven things that distinguish the Son about whom he speaks from all those who previously spoke the word of God. And the first thing he gives us is that he is appointed heir of all things. The Lord Jesus, when he came, inherited the responsibility for a cursed estate. He inherited the responsibility of redeeming a creation and a people who was under God's curse. But in chapter 10, 53 and verse 10 of Isaiah, God's promise that God gave to the Son in eternity is recorded for us. That if he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. What Adam lost through carelessly listening to another voice and exercising his independence by following his own desires, God places in the hands of his son, into the hands of a second Adam, the last Adam. There is a story I once heard of a boy who lost his prized yacht because he was, as he played with it, it sailed beyond his reach. And I, I, this is perhaps dear to me because I've experienced the same thing. He was broken hearted. But then one day he was passing a second hand shop and he looked into the window and there he saw his yacht sitting in the window. And so he went into the shop and he said to the man behind the counter, that is my boat, that's my yacht. And he was told the price. So he went home and he got together everything that he had. And he returned to the shop and he bought the yacht. And holding it in his arms, he rejoiced. He says, now you are twice mine. I made you, 
and I bought you. And here we see the Lord Jesus having been given a creation that he made as we shall see. And now it's twice his because he bought it. Adam and Eve lost a world through sin but our Lord Jesus was promised that through his obedience and sacrifice that it was God's good pleasure to give him the result of his sacrifice in a redeemed creation. And then secondly, he is creator. Not only is he inheritor of all, he is actually the creator of all. All things, John says, came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Paul says in Colossians 1.16, For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created by him and for him. Hebrews reminds us here that we are not considering any ordinary man when we talk of the Son. But we are considering the creator of the universe. For as we read, for by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, dominions, or rulers, or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. God spoke, and emptiness and nothing became something. Through the activity of the sun, stars and planets, Light and order, life and beauty, all appeared. I'm reminded of the words of ben Benjamin Handy as I think of this colossal truth when he asked the question, Who is he in yonder stall, at whose feet the shepherds fall? Tis the Lord. A wondrous story. Tis the Lord, the King of glory. And the author of our letter leads us to put our confidence in this one, who is in fact the creator of all. But he is the brightness of God's glory. When we try to look at the sun, we cannot because it is too bright. Our eyes cannot bear its brightness. But we can see its reflection quite clearly in the moon. When Moses went up into the mountain, into the cloud, he found himself in the presence of God's glory. And when he came down from the mountain, he still had the reflection of that glory on his person. And he had to cover his face because people could not look at him. But even so, the mere reflection of that glory was more than the eye of fallen men could bear.
But here, we are not dealing with reflected glory, but the possessor of the glory himself. For the sun is the very radiance of God's glory. True, we do not see the sun visual in his visual glory. We do not see his glory as Peter, James and John saw it on the Mount of Transfiguration. But we do see it veiled in human flesh. For in the Son we have revealed to us the glory of God's everlasting love and faithfulness. We see the essence of God's glory. Then fourthly, he is not only the brightness of God's glory, but the exact representation of his nature. The word that is used here for the image is one that is used of the tool that an engraver used to make his patterns, but later became to be used of the pattern itself. And finally, for minting of coins. The coin being the exact copy of the image found in the mould. Here it is the idea of exactness that is in mind, not that of being a copy. Though it is a, it's true of the way that God made humanity, that he made us in his image, and so true of the Lord Jesus in his humanity, but it means much more than that here. It means the same, the reproduction of God's character of God himself, the exact representation of his nature. We may not be able to literally see our Lord Jesus' glory yet, but the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth, having the exact same nature as God. This is the real blessing of the Spirit's presence in the life of a believer, to make known to us the glory of the Lord of, of God in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. For God who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. That is, in his character. Have you seen the glory of God in Christ? For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. And as we said earlier, we are not looking here at any man, but at the Son of God who can say to us, as he said to Philip, he who has seen me has seen the Father. Here in the Lord Jesus we see the character of God bound in human form. Or as Charles Wesley put it, our God contracted to a span, incomprehensibly made man. Then 
Jesus tells us that he who takes the time to know me will know God. Can you afford in the light of who he is not to take the time to know him and to put your confidence in him and in what he promises? Have you ever wondered of oh, the fifth attribute of the Son that our author wants us to know is that he upholds all things by the word of his power. Have you ever wondered how things stay together? I've often thought of this while I've been up in an aeroplane and asked myself, how do we stay up here? What makes iron hard and water hang together as a liquid? Well, if I start thinking a little bit deeper, what gives life to things? Or even, why am I me? Why am I who I am? It may be very strong, like iron, um, sorry, when I was a few years back, when we, John and I were at Bible school, or just after, was the time when Star Wars came out. And we were introduced, if you remember, for those of you who, who are Star Wars fans, we were introduced to the Force. And we were introduced to the message that if you allowed yourself to be, um, how can I put it? If you submitted yourself to the force, it could become part of you. And you could become like Luke Skywalker and uh, become part of the force. And we're told that the force holds the universe together. But the sad thing about that force is that, in fact, it is less than I am. It may be very strong, but it cannot speak. It cannot know. It cannot reason. It cannot befriend me. It is just impersonal power. Now the word of God is very clear on this point. The power behind this universe is not just an impersonal force. It is a personal God. Father, Son, and Spirit. Creator, Sustainer, and unlike that impersonal force, He is the friend of those who love Him. Listen to what the Word says. In Job 12.10 it says that of the world in whose hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. Or Daniel, the God in whose hand are your life, breath and your ways. Or Paul in Acts when he says, for in him we live and move and exist. I am who I am 
And I stay up there in an aeroplane when everything says that I should fall into out of the sky because God holds all things. He is the sustainer of all things. And they exist because he sustains them. And so do I. God's understanding and control of his creation is so comprehensive that the Lord Jesus can say in Matthew, Are not two sparrows sold for a cent? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your Father. But the very hairs of your head are numbered. I must confess that God has an easier job now than he used to have in the numbering the hairs on my head. But the result is, therefore, do not fear. You are of more value than many sparrows. This truth is foundational to our ongoing confidence in him every day. But whilst we have this confidence, there is another side of this that we must take into consideration. Probably one of the most searching aspects of all. O oh Lord, the psalmist says, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. You have enclosed me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain to it. Indeed, who can comprehend it? And who can endure it? It's a devastating thing to know that everything that I do or think, even the things I would hide from others, everything that occurs in my life, is known to him. When we consider that truth, we must bow with Isaiah and say, Woe is me, for I am undone. Not because we have seen God, but because we know God sees us. I think the author of Hebrews had this in mind because he is quick to point out the sixth attribute of the Lord Jesus, an essential attribute, when we start to think about these things. For he made purification for sins. The word translated here, purification, is sometimes translated as put away, meaning to put away something that is previously been set in place. <clears throat> or we may say today, 
set in concrete. It refers to my sin as the source of my rebellion. And Paul says, I find in the principle that evil is present with me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? You see, Paul understood the frustration of sin to the believer, to the one who, having seen sin for what it is, has it ever present in frustrating his efforts of righteousness, to the one who would like to be obedient to God, and to be satisfying to God, but has all his efforts tainted with sin. Remember a preacher saying once, and uh, I can put my aim into it, that when he has finished a sermon, if he felt that it was a good sermon, he went somebody telling him how good the sermon was before he left the pulpit. Even the best things that we do, even preaching a sermon is tainted by the sin of self-interest and self-aggrandizement. We pat ourselves on the back and pride begins to pollute even the best of things that we do. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? Paul understood the frustration of sin. But the writer to the Hebrews tells us when he had by himself purged our sins, when he had taken that which was set in concrete and he had put it aside, and he did it, by himself. The King James Version, if you have it and you're a fan of the King James Version, it says, when he had by himself purged our sins. Now today it's recognized that that's not absolutely correct translation. But the Greek suggests that the sentiment that is involved in those words indeed is true. As does the Lord Jesus' own words, when he says, for this reason the Father loves me, because I laid down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I receive from my Father. He purged our sins on his own. Nothing persuaded him to. No outside influence pushed him to. 
He did it because he chose to do it. He did it because he loved us. He purged our sins by his own choice. He purged our sins because he loved those whom the Father had given to him. Because where we read, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Paul puts it like this in Philippians 2, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What a magnificent truth that God's own Son, having loved his own who were sinners, should choose to give himself voluntarily to humiliation, to shame, and to terrible judgment in order that he may be made, we may be made free from our sins and our guilt and its consequences. It is little wonder that Isaac Watts says when he considered the cross that he poured contempt on all his pride. What a debt of love we owe him who has by his death cancelled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us. He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. What of you this morning? Do you know this man? Can you say with Paul after seeing your sin, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Because of who he is. Or do you still wonder if his lovers and his actions can extend to you? Charles Wesley pondered this thought and wrote, And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Saviour's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain? For me who him to death pursued? Amazing love. How can it be that you, my God, which died for me. And now he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also freely give us all things in the Son? Have you considered him and who he is? Have you considered what the Father offers? in the sun. Thousands have found life and hope in accepting what he does 
and what he has done to make them right with God. Then finally, the seventh thing that the writer to the Hebrews wants us to understand about the Son whom God has spoken to us through. He is an exalted Saviour. And when he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. While the Lord Jesus was hanging on the cross, he cried out, and he cried out in a loud voice, It is finished. It is finished. What is finished? All that had been required for the redemption of creation, all that had been required for the redemption of sinners, had been completed by the offering of himself to God as a guilt offering on behalf of sinners who would trust him. The work was finished on the cross. He and he alone had done all that was needed to bring his people to glory. Now he was to take his place reserved for him as the exalted Lord and Saviour. Or as Paul has put it in Philippians with regard to us and to our attitudes, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. Of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, of those principalities and powers that were spoken of earlier, and of every man, woman and child who has ever lived on this earth, Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And of course the question for us today is, have you bowed your knee to him who is the Lord of glory? On the Mount of Transfiguration, the Lord Jesus stood with Moses and Elijah who represented those who spoke in times past. But while they were there and speaking about what those in times past had spoken of, there was a voice that came from heaven and said, This, this is my beloved Son. Listen to him. So God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son. Listen to him. What more can be said? And to you he has said, who've come to Jesus. Let's pray. Mm -hmm.
God, our Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us to see and to understand who our Lord Jesus is. Help us to see and to understand the extent of his love. Help us to see and understand the extent of that salvation which he has won for us. O oh God our Father, help us to glorify him in the response of our hearts and in the way that we live, because we ask it in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.